you know, after how much Season 3 has been kind of knocking it out of the park for the most part, it's nice to see something a little more average to below average. Before I go into anything else, uh, whoops, I would like to know what you guys think of this episode. Now, I ask that because I want one, one additional bit of information, if you don't mind. What did you think of this episode and how recently have you seen it? Lord knows that I'm a big proponent of the idea of re-examining works. And going back through Star Trek, first Voyager and now TNG and DS9, has been showing me how different my opinions mold and become over time. You know, with, with, the, exam, with, with the advantage of hindsight uh, and age and examination, my opinions have, have... I've shown this several times. My opinions have been going all over the place. Sometimes better, sometimes worse. By memory... I felt that this was a enjoyable episode, if extremely dumb, to the point where I would actually call it a bad script. Having re-examined it, I think that this is about two-thirds of a bad episode, with one-third squished into the middle, and that one-third is basically average. Maybe just barely above average. So here's the problem. <laughs> the beginning of the episode is the chase. The, the, the attempt to capture Rogodenar. The end of the episode is the chase to capture Rogodenar, which, by the way, was actually fleshed out by Ira Stephen Bear. I'll talk about that later. I guess I'll talk about it now, because Ira Stephen Bear at this point in time wasn't really a Star Trek writer. He was certainly familiar with the original series, but he wasn't exactly familiar with TNG or the way things worked. I bring that up because that's one of those, oh, that makes so much sense kind of a moments. It's like, of course it makes sense that... That's why Rogadanar is basically a space wizard in the in the final X-Blade. I mean, I'm sorry. He pulls off straight-up magic half the time. Anyways, there were some clever things. There were some clever things. Uh, in fact, I like the wharf reversal thing uh, as one of my favorite parts of that. I wonder if that was Bear or if that was the writer. I didn't actually write down the name of the writer because I didn't want to. You ever have one of those things where you get a piece of information and it's just like, oh, that makes so much sense. And you kind of know intellectually that that might not really be the cause. Like, that doesn't really explain everything. But at the same time, you're just like, yeah, no, that, that just does kind of fit. The guy who wrote this episode wrote Fairhaven over on Voyager. Kind of fits, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, the Angoshans are uppity as crap. And they're like, oh yes, we're very peaceful, committed people, intellectual people, peaceful people, committed people, intellectual people. You know, you could just, you could just watch them, and I mean no offense whatsoever to James Cromwell, because he's actually a very good actor, and this is not his first uh, of several appearances in Star Trek. But quite the contrary, Cromwell is a good actor, and that's why he so wonderfully gets across the perspective of someone who really, really enjoys the smell of his own farts. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. This is one of the most per just absolutely smug people I've seen in TNG to date. Like, this is up there with a lot of the Season 1 crap we had back in Season 1. Jesus. And the funny thing was, my first thought was, well, of course the Federation wants him and them. I mean, they're all with that, right? They're, they're, oh, God attack. Whoa, excuse me. They're all like, yes, of course. Ah, yes. Oh, delectable bouquet, right? But that's the, the cynic in me, the jokester in me. 
I don't mean that sincerely because I can't actually believe that. For as much as I make fun, as for as much as I poke, I can't believe the Federation is that uppity. Is, is that snobbish. So that brings me to the question, why the hell is the Federation considering admitting these people into the Federation? Now, we know the answer why, it's because this is a surface-level script. In other words, a concept I've talked about many, 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 many times, especially recently, is just go with it. When the writers obviously didn't want to think about the more in-depth ramifications, or the complexities of a situation, or how things don't really make sense if you think about it, they just want you to go with it. This is very much a surface issue. They don't really do anything with the concept, which is actually a really cool and interesting concept, and I'll get to that in a moment. Instead, what we have is just, yeah, they're joining the Federation. And the Federation is apparently, from all intents, like one step away from accepting these people. And yet, they knew nothing about this whole reprogramming people program, which apparently they were so against that they're willing to just, on that one point, shove them out of admittance into the Federation. For the record, I, the way I say that may make it sound like I'm against the Federation's decision. That's not my point. My point is that this was such a big issue, the Federation is willing to kick them out on this one point alone, and yet somehow they just didn't know about this. Do they really do this surface-level investigation of planets wanting to join the Federation? Well, they do if they desperately want new members. Forgive me for headcanoning for a moment, but this episode can be made to make sense if you presume that the Federation is not incompetent so much as desperate. That they are significantly worried about the various threats that have been slowly cropping up, and basically that some people in charge, especially at Starfleet, can probably see the writing on the wall. They can tell that they're reaching the end of the Golden Age, and it will end at the end of Season 3. So... You can just see that they're, they they see that coming, and with the Romulans and the background threat of the Borg, which, in canon, we do know they have been worrying about and dealing with this entire time. Like, they have, they have spent the entire time since q up to Best of Both Worlds prepping for the Borg threat. And again, the Romulan threat is very resurgent, and they just got a ton of new information from Admiral Jarok about the Romulans to help them deal with them in the future. So again, it can be made to make sense that... This is the Federation saying, oh, you want to join? Yeah, 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 come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. Well, but we haven't even told you about our incredibly unethical, you know, no, that's fine, that's fine, just join, just join. Right? Now, that was in no way the intent of the writers, and we have to acknowledge that. There is always a difference between subtlety that's written into a script and subtlety we pull out of a script, and sometimes that line's blurs. And I point that out because I've been accused several times of automatically assuming that all subtle points are in a script itself, which is not true. But the internet tells me things about myself every day, so I'm kind of used to it at this point. So, I have a section here of my notes, which is just the beginning chase of Roga and the end chase of Roga. Roga, Danar, I'm going to call him Danar, because I can't remember his first name all of a sudden. We'll skip over that. Because it's the least interesting to talk about in the whole episode. Here's a weird question. I have an answer for this, but I want to ask the question, and if you feel like pausing after I ask, before I answer, to answer me, please feel free to do so. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Why don't they just kill the prisoners? Why don't they just, once they have them captured and sedated or docile or whatever, execute them? Now, that sounds horrible, but by their own account, these people are 
really, really dangerous and cannot be trusted to be around the rest of civilized society. The, the will of the people, they say that twice in the climax, the will of the people was that these people be locked away, right? Hmm? These people are willing to hide and lie about the very existence of these people, both overtly, as in not revealing the fact that they exist at all to the Federation, and then more directly, Mr. Cromwell's character, I actually can't remember the, the minister guy, flat out lies to Picard twice in this episode. And when called on it, he actually has the audacity to say, oh, well, he's, he, Mr. Dadar's just feeding you half-truths and misinformation. He would say anything. He's a criminal. And in that very same conversation, he himself gives half-truths and outright lies. These people are obviously willing to obfuscate when it comes to these prisoners of war. So why not just execute them and be done with it? They even mention how much effort is being put into making these people as comfortable as possible. And that's a lot of time and effort and expense on people who you're just going to leave locked up for life. Why bother? This is me pausing so you can pause if you want to pause before hearing my answer. Because, again, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. Here's my answer. Here's my take on this. Because they would never do something so wrong as to do that. That would be beneath them. They are more evolved, more superior than the, the kind of people who would execute their own people once they're no longer useful. No, we are going to give them their own lives, and we will give them their own colony. They can't leave there, but they will be t kept taken care of. Look at how enlightened we are. Look at how kind we are. All the effort we're putting into making these people as comfortable as possible. It would never occur to these uppity snobs to murder someone because it might be a pragmatic choice. They might even agree with the pragmatism of the choice if it came to it. But remember, these people have no idea of how to deal with violent acts. It's one of the most recurrent themes about them. They don't know how to deal... Their own guards are incompetent because their guards are not programmed like the soldiers are, right? They, their own pilots don't know how to deal with this. Their own security issues don't know how to deal with this. Nobody knows how to deal with this. They just hand out guns like, all right, we're going to make a stand here, Right? These people have gone out of their way to distance themselves from the tools to do the unpleasant work. The, so, these prisoners, these war reprogrammies, whatever you want to call them, are disposable people. A way to keep us from having to even think about such unsullied acts. I don't have to do violence. Violence is so beneath me. Uh, but sir, we're at war with another interstellar power. Yes, but I'm not killing them. I'm just ordering a few people around on a map. Right? I've talked about this before. It, as a psychological concept, it's actually legitimately difficult for a human being to, for example, strangle someone to death with their bare hands. It happens. There are people who can and do do that for a huge variety of reasons. But it is very difficult because of how immediate and personal that is. But shooting someone, well, that's a step further back. Or how about shooting someone because you were ordered to? Or how about ordering someone to shoot someone? Or how about ordering a guy to order people to shoot something? And so forth and so on. Star Trek itself has one of the best allegories for this, although this applies to real life as well. How hard is it to hit a few buttons on a console? Right? You may be killing people. Dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions of people. But how hard is it 
to press a few buttons on a console. Right? So that's what these people do deliberately, going out of their way to divorce their own people from the reality of what war is. And whether that's a good or a bad thing, that's a very interesting and debatable topic that this episode doesn't bring up at all because it's a surface-level episode. There's this note here. He tells Troy, you know, you can do it if you, ha- if you have to. She says, did you have to? It was war. There's actually some good exposition in the middle of this episode. A lot of information is dumped based on how things are said and what they're talking about. We get the implication that this war they had with whatever other interstellar power it was, I don't remember their name, they, they mention it once in the entire episode, um, that this war was so bad that they were on the verge of facing extinction or subservience. That they were in a total surrender scenario. He flat out admits he volunteered. He says that with a wonderful tint of pride in his no- in his note. And the implications then are that plenty of people volunteered. Lots of people lined up to say, yes, we will deal with this. We will save our people. In other words, that this was what would usually be referred to as a just war. Now, that may or may not be true. In a truly complex situation, you know, even a war of defense, even a, in an unprovoked war, can still be a situation in which you are not exactly the good guys. But, based on the presentation here, I think we could at least argue that the uh, Angosians, that's these people, not the other people, uh, were, were not the aggressors in this conflict. And that just adds some wonderful flavor to the middle chunk of this, where we really start to examine the Angosian people and how they dealt with this problem. Troy and Data are both basically perfect people to do this. In fact, they're so perfect, I'm pretty sure that's exactly why they were the ones to interact with with, uh, Danar. Because Troy is the emotional one, and Data is the logical one. And because there's even a scene where both of them flat out state, I don't believe that. You are not a dangerous criminal. Together, on the same screen. Again, it's a little too obvious. Like I said, it's it's what usually is referred to as on the nose, which is when you have someone show up and say, I am an evil bad guy. That's that's on the nose. It's when you just flat out present something as the obvious thing that it is. No no subtlety, no hints, no nothing, no nuance, okay? So they even have the scene where the two of them say this, but at the same time, it does work because of the implications that are presented there, the ideas that just fester in the middle part of that episode and never go anywhere. It's the only reason I like this episode at all, if I'm completely blunt, is because the middle chunk where they examine this culture. Um, there's this wonderful part where, where Picard goes down to personally meet Dana and flat out says, out of honesty and respect, I have to do this, but I thought you deserved to know face to face. And, and Danar flat out says in response, then you deserve to know I'm going to do everything I can to break out. Notice he hasn't even mentioned that yet. Now, granted, it's implied, but his overt statement of that, to me, means that he does actually respect Picard for what he did. And I like that for two reasons. Number one, because of course he does. Picard basically was just being a respectful, decent person to him. But number two, because Picard is a commander. Someone who has been literally militarily programmed is probably going to respond more positively to someone who has the kind of authoritative authoritative aura that Patrick Stewart has, that, that Jean-Luc Picard has. More, in other words, responded to that kind of person more positively than they would someone else. 
you can't tell me he didn't look at Picard and just I would have loved it if I was the director I would have had this thing where he just as soon as he sees Picard he looks at him for a second then he just unconsciously like not changing his expression but he just straightens his shoulders out like gets a little bit of attention and he has to like catch himself and pull himself out of the movement right just a little detail like that would have really helped anyways so the next thing I want to talk about is they have is the problem with the episode even despite the interesting middle part of the episode it is ruined by the fact that this is completely the obvious thing this is someone who has been chemically and psychologically programmed to be the and I'm using a direct quote here perfect soldier now, this is a problem for two reasons the first reason is the simplest I'll explain it first anytime fiction tends to send there say such and such is the perfect such and such they sort of treat that like it's a comic book. Have you ever noticed that? Like the perfect soldier, the perfect commander, the perfect killing machine can just do things and succeed at things even when, if you think about it, that doesn't actually quite make sense, right? Well, of course they're able to do that. They're perfect. And you see the problem here. This is funny because there was actually an episode in Star Trek TNG that addresses the fallacy in this logic. Someone can commit no errors and still lose. Remember that? Anyways. So that's the first problem. The second problem is that he was chemically programmed. And there's actually another problem which I haven't even discussed yet because I'm saving it for last. Because so far I'm still being relatively positive to this episode. I'm going to tear it a new one in a minute here. <clears throat> That problem takes away a lot of the episode. I like the idea that they're like, okay, we're going to give you enhanced reflexes and, and like strength. Okay, a little bit of genetic engineering to make you a little bit superior. Okay, I'm willing to go with that. Not only does that make a degree of sense, it brings them a little bit more down to earth, but, and this is the important part, that's something Star Trek's already established. We know supermen exist, if nothing else, because of Khan, right? And we know certain aliens are simply stronger than other aliens. That's a long-standing thing that's been established. So that's not really a big deal. And it would make sense for the intellectual superiority people to try and use something like that in order to build their soldiers, in order to fight their wars for them. With it. But reprogramming them? Literally turning them into killing machines? program for survival first. Basically, the way Troy describes it, she doesn't mean this as a way, but what she effectively means is that these people have a segregate personality, which I don't remember the proper term for. Please forgive me. It's not schizophrenia. There's another term. Um, but that, the idea that they have a second personality, which just kicks in when certain instincts are brought into play because of the programming. That's my biggest problem with this. Uh, well, no. That's my second biggest problem with this episode, because we haven't gotten to my biggest problem yet. Because war changes people. I, I know family who can attest to that. I have friends who can attest to that. I imagine some of you watching this now can either, you personally or from people you know, attest to this fact. Right? Why not just have it so that these people had the little bit of augmentation and then went to war and then became this as a consequence of fighting in a war? The reprogramming thing detracts from it for me completely, significantly. And I know what you're going to say. Well, but it wouldn't be a sci-fi-y. <sighs> I can't argue against that. I, I can't. You're right. It would be a, a much more normal and ordinary tale because of that fact, other than the genetic augmentation thing, of course. 
But to me, it makes it mean more because, A, it paints these people as even more victims because they're victims of circumstance rather than victims of the bad guys. And, B, it also grays out the bad guys. See, here's the problem, the second problem with this episode. Cromwell and his people, the government, they're the bad guys of this episode. They are. They're portrayed as that consistently throughout the whole episode. They lie, they hide, they half-truth, and they treat these disposable people as if they don't matter. As if they, they're, oh, well, you know, we're going to send you off here and we're blah, 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 blah. And they're treated as if they are the bad guys consistently. These people who flat out admit they can remove the chemicals and believe there's no purpose in even trying? No, they're the bad guys. And the soldiers are 100% the victims. Gray that out a little bit more. Have these people brought them back and like, ah, welcome home. Oh, my God. And, you know, have incidents happen. Have problems as these people try to adjust to normal society. God's sakes, Vietnam? I mean, just to go to with the most obvious example possible. I mean, this, this, this seems so obvious. I can't imagine why they did it this way. And then I remind myself that the guy wrote this for Fairhaven, and I just kind of go, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The other reason that this bothers me, and this is the final point I'll make before we get to the thing that really bugs me about this episode, is that this makes their actions throughout the episode suddenly make tons of sense. These people, let, let's assume, let's headcanon this a little bit, okay? Let's rewrite this episode. We'll make an Arshun Gaia version, okay? Let's rewrite this episode so that they weren't mentally reprogrammed, chemically reprogrammed, and turned into super blood people. Instead, let's just make them stronger, okay? Better reflexes, you know, better muscle, better tensions, better signal uh, ratio. Okay, sure. You know, basically improve them so that they are better. And then war happened and they came back wrong. With me? So the society sees this and they're like, whoa! And they try to embrace them, they try to bring them back, and they basically can't. And... They, in their shame and disgust at what they had to do and at what is this literal visual representation of what they have become, say, okay, no, we're, we're going to make this right. We're going to put them over there in a corner. We don't have to look at them. We'll go way out of our way to take care of them because we still want them to be happy and have their lives. It's just going to be over there away from the rest of us. Funnily enough, this sounds very similar to an overall concept that was in The Vengeance Factor, if you're paying attention, but moving on. So... We've done all this, and then the, the topic is brought up. Because this war ended a bit ago, right? The topic is brought up. What do we do next time? Like, we won that war. What happens if someone bigger shows up? That was just another planet, or whatever. You know, another system. What happens if someone from another sector shows up? What if we have another war of incursion? What, what if someone tries to go after our colonies? What do we do then? Oh, geez. Debate, debate, topic, topic. I've got an idea. Let's join the Federation. And the funny thing is you can see how this isn't necessarily an evil decision, can't you? Because it is logical. We do not want to sully our hands, but we need to defend ourselves. We don't want to use the Federation per se, because they'd probably be willing to add of their knowledge and their technology and their culture to the Federation. But there are certain things they simply feel they can't do, like fighting and killing. And the Federation... Well, the Federation has what some people believe to be a military. Let's say it that way. I'm trying to be as polite as I can here, about, or uh, diplomatic as I can about your politics. That's the word I learned to use. 
So why not do that, right? You can see how it's kind of, eh, because they're basically trying to use the Federation as a shield, but it's not a completely evil, selfish act, because they do actually want to join the Federation as partners, as members, in order to contribute to it, right? Helps gray them out a little bit, make it a little bit more complex of a scenario. In fact, to be blunt, as the episode is presented, my headcanon is that they're the bad guys, and they want the Federation in here solely to be their shield and nothing else. So they can just call up, hey, feds, feds, oh god, the, the Dagarians have just shown up, can you go kill them for us? Thanks. Because that's how they're portrayed. But of course, we know what these people could add to the Federation. It is their magic, because these people are sorcerers. Uh, I hear Makarov actually came from this people. <laughs> Makarov was an Angosian. Uh, this is what really bothers me about the episode. I actually asked a couple viewers and a few friends what they thought about this episode in a vacuum. Like, just if I say the episode The Hunted, what do you think about it? Every single one of them, 100% of them gave me the same response. The super magic soldier who is just better at everything than everyone. I bet a lot of you thought that too, because that's probably what stuck in your mind the most about this episode, because it dominates about two-thirds of the entire episode. Literally, there's like the initial chase, and then there's the latter chase, and then there's a relatively small chunk in the middle where they try to actually have an episode. <laughs> Let's go for this. So he goes out to the asteroid, and then he comes out the other end, and he fakes his own death by smashing that. Okay, that's mildly clever. The only reason that works at all is because of the fact that his own, he can't be detected. He has no life signs, which is bullcrap on so many different levels that I don't even know where to start. These people have the ability to make someone who has no life signs. Keep in mind, they beam this guy on a regular basis, more than once, in other words. And yet, despite the fact that this guy can beam, they can't detect him on sensors. Now, I know what you're trying to say. Well, obviously, they can just detect the mass. That's probably a good answer to this, that if they just started looking for a moving mass, they might have been able to find him. They never do that, because this is a badly written episode. So, next point. So he's, he gets out, and he goes to hide at the polar core. Okay, that's good. That's actually something that was mentioned uh, by Riker before, I believe. I'm pretty sure that came up before. I know that's a Riker maneuver, hiding at the poor, and that, and that makes sense why he would bring that up. So, okay, I'm with that. That makes sense. Then, I'm not exactly sure what his plan was, just hang out there with half of a ship until the Enterprise leaves. I mean, so then the Enterprise finds him. It's like, oh, okay. Well, see, he decides to ram the ship, somehow knowing that this would automatically, as Data helpfully points out, it disengage the tractor beam and engage the shields. Question, how is his ship moving under a tractor beam of a much larger and more powerful ship? Also, why can't you override things like that ramming maneuver disengaging the tractor beam? And then, of course, he gets away in an escape pod. Now, funnily enough, Data's the one who calls him on this. And I point that out because it's a really obvious ploy. It is, in fact, the exact same ploy he just did with the asteroid. It is also the only ploy he's capable of doing. No, really. Every single thing he does to outmaneuver the Enterprise is to walk left, and then the Enterprise rushes left to get him, and he's actually gone right. That's the same strategy over and over and over. So then they catch him. And then what happens is the most BS thing in the entire episode. This is so BS that it destroys and shatters my suspension of disbelief to the point where I can't even comprehend it. He is being beamed away. 
while he's being beamed away, he's he's moving and gesticulating in the transporter beam, which is already messed up for several reasons. But even if we're willing to accept that, he then manages to break out of the transporter beam and cause a detonation based on the power of his space wizard abilities. In so doing, he manages to make it so that he can be beamed to another part of the ship intact, fully fine, and where he wants to be. What? I actually cannot properly vocalize my incredulity at this point. That's why I'm not even going to try. I'm not going to shout and scream. Because I, I can't raise my voice enough to sufficiently express how bullcrap that is. Then he gets a phaser, fakes the turbo lift. That's actually kind of neat. I do like that he fakes the turbo lift out and leaves the phaser there for two reasons. Number one, that's a decent strategy. But number two, and far more importantly, because Worf is awesome. Worf is actually pretty awesome in general in this final chase scene, so I will give that to Ira Stephen Bear for giving Worf a chance to shine. In fact, even in the final fight between Worf and Denar, which Worf loses, which sucks, I, I know it's a joke. I know it's a meme. Worf should beat the crap out of this guy. I'm sorry. Worf should beat the crap out of this guy. Anyways, Worf goes down and is like, seal the deck. And then with, with just seconds to spare, like, doesn't hesitate, doesn't do anything. Seal the deck, on the knee, oh, fixing the battery, just like that. Fixing the phaser, just like that. That's awesome and exactly what should happen. That was great. So I want to give credit where credit is due, because that one slice of, of competence was great. And I have to point that out, because everyone else is incredibly incompetent in this chase. No, seriously. There's actually this bit where they're like, Riker and Picard appear to have tossed their brains out the window, because they're like, oh, he's, he's going in a direction that's close to Shuttle Bay 2. He must be trying to go to Shuttle Bay 2. Granted, his entire strategy so far, including during the second chase, has been to misdirect us, but obviously that's what he's doing. Okay, we've got him. This time we will totally have him. He's trapped like a rat in a cage. And <sighs> Data's the only one who even begins to question this. In fact, there's this bit where Data's like, I don't actually think he's going to, to Shuttle Bay. And both Riker and Picard act like he's like, what, really? Well, look, he's right there, man. Come on. Both of them act so stupid. It's actually weird to me. <laughs> They're like, Data, no, he's he's clearly... Going in that direction, Data's like, yes, but everything he's been doing to date has been misdirection. Also, he took out engineering in 12 seconds. Hear me out. I timed this. So, uh, Danar disables the force field, right? Then the scene cuts to uh, Data on the bridge saying a force field's been disabled. Then, and I started counting from that point until we get, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, that's near main engineering. He must be going to main engineering. Riker immediately says, Riker to engineering. 12 seconds. He doesn't get a response because he's already disabled all of engineering, which is a large area. 12 seconds. The only way this can be made to make sense at all is one of two things, which could also be both. Either, for some reason, it took Data a long time to detect that one of their force fields went down, which is stupid, or this guy is the Flash, which is stupid. So anyways, they take uh, he takes it all of engineering, literally glances. Remember, the talk is... Clock is ticking during this whole thing, so there's no cutaways where we can assume time has passed. All of this is happening in real time, right? 
unless they're using editing tricks, which is why I mentioned the 12-second thing earlier. So he glances at the engineering thing. He's like, okay, I, having glanced at this display, I know how to do two things that I very much want to do. First thing I want to do is I want to redirect power and out-program data in order to turn on power. To, 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 he out-reroutes data. That's probably the second most ridiculous thing he's done here, after the beaming thing and just before the engineering thing. So then having done so that, he also knows exactly where he has to put that phaser beam in order to take out the external exterior sensors in a Jeffrey's tube that has never been seen before or since. No, seriously, I looked this up. You, you know what Jeffrey's tubes are. Uh, uh, uh. You know, on Voyager, they were a little bit more roomy, but you, st you get, still get down there on your hands and knees to go through them, right? This guy's strolling through a corridor. I'm not even sure why they added that just for this one episode. I'm pretty sure it is a corridor redressed, but I wasn't able to find out exactly. Anyways, so then he does that, <clears throat> takes out the exterior, has that in place to take out the exterior sensors, and then he goes out to his real destination, the cargo bay, and then they start pumping in the gas, and he's like, ah, no problem. I've got a fix for that. I'm going to get out an environmental suit and then hide... No explanation is ever given for how he endures the gas, by the way. He just hid and was fine. And then Worf is awesome for a second time, because Worf very quickly picks up on what's going on, because Worf is actually awesome, whenever, whenever he's allowed to be, and says... And I noticed Worf was being just a little bit too loud about this. I feel like they did that just in case the audience wasn't picking up on it. He says, oh, oh my gosh, he's gotten this thing. He must be going to Shuttle Bay 2. And he doesn't say anything verbally to indicate that he's picked up on it. Of course he doesn't, because Danar is listening in on him. And then, of course, Worf is like, all right, I've got you. Did I mention this guy's phaser-resistant? This is the second time in a row that we've had a genetically engineered person who is phaser-resistant. What the hell? Anyways, so rather than shooting him or doing anything that he could have done, Worf ends up fighting the guy. Credit where credit is due. It's a decent fight between him, but Worf should have crushed this guy. I'm sorry. Uh, anyways, so D Dinar, Dinar got a... Uh, saying that word over and over is just getting weird. Beats Worf. And then the phasers go down. And then he beams over to the other ship. And he wins. Because he's Makarov's apprentice or something. I don't know. I really want to stress this. Because this is actually a historic moment for me in TNG. In Star Trek in general. And I mean that sincerely. I have mentioned before how much it aggravated me over on Voyager when Voyager would meet a species of the week and they were just better than them, right? Like, the worst example still to date is that frickin' prison planet, uh, The Resistance, I want to say, um, is the name of the episode, where they're, they're, they're a space-bound power, and yet somehow that space-bound power still manages to outpower the, the, the Voyager, the intrepid-class cruiser, um, destroyer, uh, light cruiser, we'll go light cruiser, up in orbit. I mean, that's so many levels of ridiculous, I, I can't even properly process that. And it used to aggravate me how much that happened. Now, Voyager actually got a lot better about that later on, because Voyager in general got a lot better, basically from season three onward. But, but it used to piss me off. And that's all because of this episode right here. When I was a kid, seven years old, I'm pretty sure at this point in time. When I was a seven-year-old kid, it actively irritated me that the crew of the Enterprise, with all of their tech, as has been displayed thus far, was so powerless against this guy from this planet 
that at the time I presumed was not an interstellar power. Paying attention in hindsight, I can tell they are, but they're, they're what I like to call a local power, right? System or sector. I've mentioned this before. Um, you know, they're city-state on the galactic community. But this guy manages to just completely sweep the Enterprise and her crew for all their tech, for all the ship, and for all of their expertise. He just rolls over them as if it's nothing. And that irritated me. And it never stopped sticking with me that one point, because this is the first time that young me encountered this and really was bothered by this. There are obviously other examples prior to this, but for me, this was the first one. And it never stopped bothering me. And it led rise to the, the writer's dilemma I've mentioned to you before, the definition of victory. I've mentioned that before. And I talked about that extensively on Veron Voyager. I've talked about that during TNG. It becomes difficult to challenge your crew when they're so good with such advanced tech. And a good writer will find a way to precisely set up a scenario so that they can still be challenged, even though technically if they wanted to, they could just crush the enemy. You know, if, if they were just interested in winning, then they could just do it, right? But episodes like this on the, are the opposite end of that, where the, the bad guy of the week or the opponent of the week or whatever just wins because... <sighs> I hope you've enjoyed my ramblings about this one. I'm sorry for going off a little bit. I hope to see you guys next week. <laughs>